Well, good morning. For those that I have not gotten to meet, my name is Clint Patronella, and my wife and my family and I have moved to Waltham where we've started the initial work of gathering a core to plant a seven-mile road uh, church, and we have felt the, uh, the kindness of this congregation and the prayers of the saints going before us, and so for that, um, we are grateful. We come to the time in our gathering where we focus our heart's attention on God's word. Because his words produce life in us. They are meant to, uh, to go down to the place that divides between joint and marrow, soul and spirit, so that we can have our lives exposed to the truth of the gospel. And when our hearts are aligned in that truth, the Lord does a work in our hearts and through us uh, to the world that is uh, transforming. And so let me pray for God to do that in our time this morning. So, Father, we do turn our hearts and our attention to the words of Scripture. Father, the words of Isaiah that Andy just read of having dull hearts and ears that are too heavy to hear and eyes that cannot see. Lord, may that not be so this morning. Give us hearts that, that will respond and turn and repent where we need to. Give us eyes to see the truth, to gaze upon the beauty of the sun and let our ears perk up to the, to the beauty and the music and the sound of the gospel this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, since I last preached, we bought a house in Waltham and moved in. And so a couple of Sundays ago after service, we got home and I went down to the basement to start a load of urine-soaked sheets in the laundry. Side note, the struggle is real with potty training. If you've not been there, you'll know what I mean when we get there. So anyway, before running the, the laundry, I wanted to pre-soak the sheets uh, in the slop sink next to it. And so I started the water and threw in some, some borax to really work it in there. And I needed to run upstairs for just a second to get something. Now I have like five other people in my house. And so going upstairs, I quickly got preoccupied And then about 20 minutes later, my gut dropped, and I remembered that I had left the water running downstairs. And so as I shuttled down the stairs and turned the corner, I stepped into my flooded basement of my newly purchased house. See, the sheet had clogged the drain, obviously, and it had filled to the point of overflowing, and now it was slopping out gallons and gallons of water onto our, did I mention newly purchased home? Yeah. So at first I thought, well, it's no big deal. The laundry room has linoleum. It's not that bad. I'll just get my wet dry vac out. We'll scoop it all up. No harm, no foul. I thought it was just a minor inconvenience. Take me about an hour tops. So I ran to go get my vacuum when I started to hear the of my feet on the soaked carpet. See, there's a wall in the laundry room, but the wall did nothing to stop the water from flowing freely underneath into the carpet. So this story is clearly an anecdote against the myth of saving time by multitasking, okay? But that's for another day. It was also a lesson in the force of running water and how it can obliterate through any obstacle to flow unhindered. And today we come to the end of the book of Acts. I mean, can you believe, we are literally, this is the last sermon in the book of Acts. So a little shout out for that. 
And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 28, verses 11 through 30. And we're going to look at the unhindered nature of the gospel to obliterate obstacles and flow unhindered. And so as we look at Acts 28, verses 11 through 30, we're going to see this big idea emerge, that no obstacle, internal or external, can stop the relentless advance of the gospel. And as we begin, I actually want to start at the very bottom. I want to look at the last two verses of our scripture today, because these last words are lasting words. These words are meant to be savored and pondered. It's like a good meal that you don't want to end. And look at me, when I said good meal, if your first thought was McDonald's, then you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's the kind of meal where each ingredient is carefully procured and handled so that each ingredient's true potential and flavor is brought out. I'm talking about the kind of meal um, where uh, a, a trained chef has procured Nantucket Cape scallops and he knows how to perfectly sear each one of them and to prepare a brown buttered rice puree with a lemon caper reduction. Again, if you don't know what I'm talking about, please go have a nice meal. It's the kind of meal that you strategically plan each bite so that each one is perfect and then you save the best bite for last. This is that last sentence in the book of Acts. And the last word is perfect to end this book. So look at it with me. It says, um, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness unhindered. Now, your translation probably says, with all boldness and without hindrance. And I translated it here for us more word for word so that we get the full impact of the Greek language. It ends with a punch. Luke's final words here are, with all boldness, unhindered. And remember with me where we've been, that Paul has been falsely accused in Jerusalem and arrested. At this point now, multiple assassination attempts have been made on his life. The justice system has failed him five times now. He's been framed and the Jewish leaders want him dead. And he's traveled hundreds of miles to get to Rome and to make his defense before Caesar. He's been shipwrecked, nearly drowned in the Mediterranean Sea. And he's been bitten by a poisonous snake. It's like the little cherry on top. And now he's made it to Rome and he's under house arrest. He's literally chained to a Roman soldier day and night. By every definition of the word hindered, Paul is, right? He is hindered in every way. But what Luke wants us to know is that the gospel is not. People are able to come to him and go to him, and he's able to preach and teach freely about the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness unhindered. And at every turn in the last few chapters, it looks like this is going to be the end. This is the end of Paul. This is going to be the thing that finally stops him and shuts him up. It's going to be the thing that crushes this early church and stops the advance of the gospel. But at every turn, what do we see? The gospel relentlessly advances. And the story ends with this word, unhindered. It's the keystone of the whole book. What Luke is telling us is that nothing, absolutely nothing can stop the relentless advance of the gospel. Not the Roman Empire, 
Not religious opposition, not natural disaster, not persecution, not doubt, not anything. And I would encourage you, read back through the book of Acts with this word, unhindered. And you'll look at every verse, every chapter comes to new light with this word in mind. You'll see the sure and steady advance of the gospel despite opposition. Now with that in our minds, this great word, unhindered, let's jump back to the top of our text for today to see that uh, some of the internal obstacles and the external obstacles that are going to press in against the gospel. And I want you to keep that word unhindered in your mind as we do. And so as Andy read, Paul and his crew have finally ended their long sea journey and they're going to head the rest of their way to Rome by foot. And when they land in Puteoli, it's about a five-day journey to, uh, to Rome. And the text says that they found brothers there and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. So what happened here is that they're not all the way to Rome And yet people have heard that he has landed uh, on on the shore. And so people are coming out to welcome him and to greet him and to walk back with him into the city. And then the text goes on to say, when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Did you hear that sentence? Paul thanked God and took courage. I literally have not been able to get over that sentence all week. I mean, think about it. He has gone through so much. And don't you think he wrestled with feelings of entitlement and just wanted some good old-fashioned comfort and convenience? I mean, was all of this worth it? The shipwrecks, the sufferings, the, the snake bites, the imprisonment. I mean, hadn't he suffered enough? Don't you think he was asking questions like, where was God in all of this? And why hadn't God just snapped his fingers and secured Paul's release? And yet Paul stays the course. And not only that, but it says he thanked God. I mean, I can see doing your duty, just putting your head down, getting the work done, and maybe having a grumpy attitude about it. But here we see Paul thanking God. Now, where would this heart of gratitude even come from? And as I thought about that, I remembered that Paul, the only way that he would have had a heart of gratitude is that he must be completely floored by the links that God has gone to save him. You see, Paul himself had become unhindered. You see, at one point, Paul was a hindrance to the gospel, Remember in our study of Acts, he was giving orders and seeking out the destruction of the church. He was an obstacle to the gospel. He was hellbrent on bringing this sect down. But he met Jesus, and his life was radically changed. And he allowed the gospel not just to change those around him as he preached, which it did, but he also allowed the gospel to start changing and shaping his heart. So that all the idols of comfort, all the idols of convenience, and all the idols of entitlement, they started to fade away. They didn't have the same grip on him that they used to. That's why he could write in Philippians, 
while he was under this house arrest. So the book of Philippians was written during this time. Look what he says in Philippians 4. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And doesn't that bring a new light to that so familiar passage? Here in our text today, the greatest internal threat to the advance of the gospel is Paul himself. See, Paul's human. He is not bulletproof. And he would quite naturally, with suffering and suffering and suffering mounting on him, it would be right and natural for him to get depressed. It would be right and natural for him to get anxious about facing Caesar in his, uh, in his date with Roman justice. But this welcome party comes and refreshes his heart and renews his courage. And behind this entourage to come and meet him, showing up at just the right time, is God himself. I mean, who stirred in their hearts to come travel on foot and meet him and bring him back into Rome at just the right time? You see, Paul's not alone. A sovereign God stands with Paul. And not only is he holding up Paul now, but for years he's been building him up. God has worked the gospel deep down into Paul, past joints and marrow, to the soul level, taking his thoughts and his intentions and making them more like Christ. Don't you see, when we talk about the gospel advancing and the kingdom of God being established, that is not something merely that's happening politically out there. It is first and foremost something that's happening right here. God sets us free from the sin that entangles us and hinders us. And the gospel moves and advances through our hearts where people are set free from sin. And not only that, but we're adopted as son and daughters into his royal family. And then we get to live in joyful service to our king. Don't miss this. The gospel advance in our hearts is powerful. It changes us, and God begins to work his holiness and his gospel into our hearts. This is the theological word we call sanctification. And because of the gospel advance, not only can we change, but get this, we do change, and that is good news. And it's here in our story where some of the mystery comes into play. For the thinkers in the room, maybe you're thinking about this right now. Let's say for a minute that God, that Paul had copped an attitude with God. Let's say he decided, you know what, God, I am done with all of this suffering from you. I'm ready for the persecution to be over. I'm just going to renounce my faith and let this thing go and live out whatever years I have of my life without all of this. If Paul had made that decision, would that have stopped the gospel? The answer? No. It just means that God's purposes and will would have been established in some other way because nothing, absolutely nothing, can hinder the relentless advance of the gospel. And this isn't the first time the gospel has faced internal obstacles uh, in the book of Acts. 
Do you remember way back in Acts 5 when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the apostles and lied to God about the sale of property and the money that they received? Their sin brought heartache and grief to the church in its early days. Think about the time in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council when the church was split over the issue of how it is that grace and law work together, how it is that Jews and Gentiles would form some kind of uh, a perfect harmony um, in, uh, as God's people. It threatened to split the church even before it even got off the ground. Think about when Paul and Barnabas had their sharp disagreement that literally separated them. Would this stop the first wave of church planting that was serving to spread the gospel? All throughout the book, there are internal, in-house obstacles that uh, seek to, to, uh, to, to thwart the advancement of the gospel. But the sure and steady gospel just keeps going because no internal obstacle can stop the relentless advance of the gospel. But not only were there internal obstacles, we find that there are also external obstacles to the gospel as well. And so when we pick up back in our story, Paul's finally in Rome. He arrives and he's there under house arrest and he's waiting his trial before Caesar. And the text tells us that after three days, Paul called together a meeting of the local leaders so that he can talk with them. And he's going to go on to basically tell them this. I'm kind of summarizing this first meeting. He tells them he has not come to Rome to cause trouble. You see, there was fear that Paul might countersue. You know how things get tied up in litigation that Paul would sue them for wrongful accusations. And he tells them, look, I haven't come here to cause trouble for you. And by the way, I am innocent of all the charges that have been brought against him. You see, these are Jews in Rome. These aren't the same Jews that have been in Jerusalem. And so he kind of wants to set the story straight with these, uh, with these leaders. And then he tells them, he believes really this whole, all of the animosity against him is really because he believes that Jesus is the hope of Israel. Now, scripture tells us this first meeting goes really well. They hear him, they respond and say, you know what? Let's set another date where we can hear you at length and tell us about this hope of Israel. And so they set a date and many people arrive to come hear the apostle Paul. And remember, don't forget the scene. He is doing all of this while chained to a Roman soldier. In every physical way, Paul is hindered. He can't go to them in their synagogues. He can't uh, uh, speak without having the soldier there next to him. But he is able to teach and preach. That's why later in 2 Timothy, Paul could write these words. I am bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Now, let's pick up the text in verse 23. It says, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said and others. Okay, so at this point, Paul gets the audience he had hoped for and gives them a marathon session. I mean, you think we go long. Paul went from morning until evening. And Luke offers us just a short summary of this day-long lecture. And what he tells us is he focused on two things. The first was the kingdom of God. 
Now, this is very, if you're familiar with the Gospels, this should sound very familiar because this is how John the Baptist and Jesus both uh, began their ministries. Look at Mark 1.15. John the Baptist enters the scene. Here's his first words. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, Paul is trying to show them that God is establishing his kingdom and his reign, and it will bring about the justice and the peace for God's people. And that's really what everybody wants. They just want peace to reign, true justice to reign, and they're not getting it with the Roman Empire. And he's trying to tell them that God's kingdom is going to come with a righteous king, but his name is Jesus. And this is where we get into the second half of what Paul talked with them about. You see, Paul spent the rest of the day trying to convince them and show them from the Old Testament that Jesus was the long-awaited-for Messiah and the rightful king deserving of their allegiance and worship. It's brilliant, right? He sets up and says, what you want is God's king to rule. Everybody wants that. He'll bring reform and justice and peace where we can live with God forever. But we have to know is that kingdom comes through the king. His name is Jesus. And God has been kind to put all sorts of markers in our sacred text to show us who this person is. Did you know that there are over 300, not exaggerating, 300 Old Testament prophecies that give an indication to who the Messiah will be and who this king will be? And as Paul went on and on all day, he would have opened up these texts and shown, look, this is what it said in our scriptures. Look how Jesus fulfills it. Okay, let me give you another one. Look at this text. He's going to be born in Nazareth. Jesus was born in Nazareth. And he would have gone on and on and on and shown them how Jesus fit each one of these prophecies. And then it tells us at the end of the day, that some were convinced and others disbelieved, that some accepted and others rejected. Now here we see an external obstacle to the gospel, right? It's going forth, he's preaching and teaching, and there's unbelief and rejection. But Paul's not done. He has a final word before the people leave, and he quotes Isaiah 6. Look with me at verse 26. Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Does the Jewish rejection of the gospel stop its advance? No. The gospel advances and the Lord will bring his message of life to those who will listen. Now this is kind of the hard edge of the message today. This is the place where we have to be willing to listen to truth no matter how hard it is. See, there's no such thing as a neutral response to the gospel. I mean, isn't, what that, isn't that what our culture wants? It just wants us to be nice and not say anything that's hard. 
But Paul uses very vivid language to describe those who reject the gospel. And he quotes Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. And what does he say? Do you remember? He says that their hearts have grown dull. The word dull here literally means to grow fat. I mean, think about this like fat capsule and uh, wrapping itself around the flesh of the heart. It becomes so full and so dense that it's unresponsive. They're engorged and unable to move. The heart wrapped in this fat has become so dense that the gospel message cannot penetrate it to the core. And then he goes on to say that their ears can barely hear. And the word picture here is that their ears are weighed down. Then he says that their eyes are closed and he uses an expression to where it's like an idiomatic expression to, to, to refer to when a dead man's eyes are heavy, when they close. And when that happens, they don't open again. So everything in this text is describing someone who is hindered and weighed down by sin and idolatry, that their own preoccupations, because of them, they cannot move or see the beauty of the gospel right in front of them. And he describes how every single one of their senses have shut down. They can't move. They can't see. They can't hear. You see, to respond to the gospel, you have to have a heart that's longing and desiring a Savior. You have to have eyes that are looking and searching. And you have to have ears that are listening. The reason people don't believe is because their hearts have become dull and dormant and dead to the things of God. And if your heart is numb and your eyes are blind and your ears are deaf, you will miss it. But Paul doesn't drop this truth bomb with attitude. It's not like he's trying to say, well, I don't love you guys. I hate you. This is, this is the lot that you are. There's regret and there's sorrow in his voice. You see, these are the people he loves. These are his own countrymen. And they're rejecting the hope and life that's found in Jesus. But the gospel will not be hindered by rejection. It will advance to those hearts who are ready to turn to the Lord in repentance. Because nothing, absolutely nothing, can hinder the relentless advance of the gospel. Now, this isn't the first time that the gospel has faced external obstacles that threaten the advance of the gospel in the book of Acts, is it? I mean, just the last chapters of Paul's life, we've seen all sorts of external obstacles, right? The false accusations, the corrupt justice system, the assassination attempts, the incarceration, the shipwreck, the snakebite. There's been direct political and religious opposition. There's been persecution, and yet none of these have stopped the advance of the gospel because persecution cannot stop the advance of the gospel. In fact, it just spreads it. If you do a casual glance at church history, it will confirm what I'm saying. In fact, I read a recent article up at the Gospel Coalition about the church in Iran. Politically, in 1979, there was a regime change, and uh, they had a hard-line stance on on Islam. And so Christianity became um, outlawed. Bibles were outlawed. Missionaries were all kicked out of the country. And over the next two decades, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. Bibles were banned. Pastors were being killed. It was awful. And the church came under tremendous pressure. And many feared that this small Iranian church would soon 
wither away and die, right? If you can't get the Bible, if you can't get missionaries in, what's to happen with this church? But instead of dying, the church in Iran is actually thriving today. In fact, Iranians have become the Muslim people most open to the gospel. You see, when the persecution started, there was an estimated 500 indigenous Christians who were from a Muslim background. And today, that number is in the hundreds of thousands, and some even estimate into the millions. Why? When persecution comes, it cannot stop the relentless advance of the gospel. In fact, God uses it to actually spread and advance his kingdom. There's no external obstacle that's too great for, the God, for God who raised Jesus from the dead to overcome. I mean, if he can raise Christ from the dead, what's a little bit of persecution and opposition? God is determined to see his kingdom established by the power of the gospel, and nothing and no one can stop it. You see, the kingdom of God is like an acorn underneath a concrete sidewalk. At first glance, the concrete is much heavier, much stronger than a meager little acorn. But when that acorn falls on fertile soil, what happens? It gets rooted. And slowly but surely, those roots grow. And that tree eventually breaks through the concrete and destroys the sidewalk. I mean, many of you park on Linden. You know that big oak tree at Linden and Green Street, right? That sidewalk for years has been destroyed. And just recently, maybe when you walk back to your car, you'll notice it, they just fixed the sidewalk. And I kind of had to chuckle to myself because it's just a temporary fix. Given enough time, those roots are going to push up and bank against that concrete, and it's just going to break again. It's just a matter of time. You see, the concrete is simply no match for the acorn. This is the relentless advance of the gospel. Now we've come to the end of Acts, and maybe some of you were a little curious at the ending. I mean, hasn't all the tension and the storyline and the plot been building up for this great trial? I mean, we don't even hear if Paul goes before the Caesar. We don't know what happens in his trial. And it seems like the book just kind of ends abruptly, like he just ran out of papyri and ink. You see, that would be the case if Luke had intended to write a biography on the life and times of the Apostle Paul. It would be an abrupt ending. But uh, but that's not his purpose. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, which is the first volume of his two-volume work, he wrote that he... Uh, uh, wrote his gospel in in the book of Acts to give an, uh, uh, an orderly account of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then in the book of Acts, his, his goal is to pick up that story to see what happens when the gospel is in the hands of the disciples. He wants to, to show how the, God, the Great Commission extends from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, that phrase, to the ends of the earth, that's still going on. And so in one sense, how do you end a book that has a future ending? I mean, in that sense, the book is open-ended. And we today are actually writing another chapter on top of another chapter on top of another chapter in the book of Acts of the relentless advance of the gospel. This church is a testament to that. And Luke never tells us 
what happens with any certainty about the Apostle Paul. But for those who were interested, I'll tell you what I think happened. We know that during this house arrest, he wrote the books of Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And there's that little clue in the uh, chapter at the very end where Luke says that after two years under house arrest, he, uh, that for two years under this house arrest, he preached and teached. So a lot of people believe that after those two years, Paul was released because the Jewish opposition never showed up, right? If there's no uh, prosecution, it's kind of hard to have a trial. And because they never bothered to make the long journey to Rome, after two years, the case and the charges against him were dropped. And so tradition tells us in early church writings that Paul was released and spent a couple more years traveling around, perhaps even getting to Spain as was his desire. And then history tells us that after two more, a few more years, he was arrested again, where he wrote his final books, Titus and Second Timothy, before being beheaded under the heavy hand of Nero. And we also know that Luke was with Paul for this whole time. And yet, isn't it interesting that Luke does not record any of this? And the reason is, is I don't think Luke wanted us to be wrapped up in Paul necessarily. I think he wanted us to see the larger picture, the bigger picture of the relentless advance of the gospel despite every um, obstacle. And so I hope through our time together, you are getting a big view of God and and, and a big vision about his kingdom. What I don't want you to leave with today is that all of this depends on you. It doesn't. And it couldn't. God is not trying to guilt you into his messianic military service. He quite literally doesn't need you. But he does want you. He does want you to live out the purposes that he's called you to. And when we do that, it's the cure for the bored life. You know those days where it seems like our life just kind of inches on and on and on with no purpose and no grand vision for life? You were created to live on mission with a gospel purpose. And as a believer in Christ, you are being transformed more and more into the image of Christ to serve him with your whole heart, your whole mind, and all of your strength. You see, God has done the work of redemption. It's his work. We get to join him and experience the delight that comes with serving our king. You see, we serve from a place of favor and love. We don't serve to earn a place of favor and love. And you have to have that gospel posture to make it safe to apply a text like this. Because if you think that serving him on his mission is going to be what makes him like you and makes him love you, it's going to go all wrong. For the believer, this frees us from the extremes of indifference and suffocation. Here's what I mean. My brother and sister, we cannot be indifferent to the gospel. The Bible has no category for the believer who's indifferent to the gospel. I mean, how can you be indifferent to the work of God around you and at the same time be asking God to move in your own life and to do the things that you want him to do? You see, what God has done in you in the work of redemption and the transformation, he actually intends to do that same work of transformation through you. What God does in you, he intends to do through you. And at the same time, not only does it free us from indifference, it frees us from suffocation. The feeling that if I don't do this, that God's mission will fail. 
if you don't leave with anything, leave with this. It will not fail. God's mission cannot fail because God cannot fail. The gospel gives us the invitation to get caught up in the triumph of God's coming kingdom because it will triumph. We get to be a part of that. We get to serve and we have a seat at the table to be agents of reconciliation. And this should help us breathe because it doesn't all depend on you and yet we're invited. We get to serve with God. God's mission does not rest on you or me. It's in his hands. So we can take a breath and realize that the salvation of the world is not resting on our shoulders. Why? It's on his. This should give us confidence and a readiness to share and serve because we're doing that work on his shoulders and he is going to see it through. We're just called to be faithful with each day. So practically speaking, this is why at Seven Mile Road, we so heavily stress gospel communities in the life of this church. We have worked really hard. We're not perfect, but we've worked really hard to make sure that our gospel communities are a safe place for you to be known and to know others. And at the same time, we're working really hard to make sure that our gospel communities are a place where we will move towards people in love in our cities and that we'll do so in tangible ways. So I want to ask this question today. Who will you move towards in love to see the gospel advance? Who? It can't be theoretical. It can't be ethereal. There has to be a face and a name. There has to be some tangible expression of what that actually looked like, what that actually looks like. And so I encourage you, especially for the gospel community leaders in the room, to make room in your gatherings as your gospel community gets together to discuss this question out loud together. Who? Who will we move towards and love? And the final piece of application, if you're here and nothing I've said resonates with you, you just, I mean, literally in your heart, can't wait till I'm done. I'm praying that God would quicken your heart and give you ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty of Christ and his gospel. It's a work that I can't fabricate. I can't manufacture it. We just pray and ask that God would do so. And so we come to the end of the book of Acts. Luke's story ends as the gospel reaches Rome, the center of the known world, where it will be carried out to the ends of the earth. And we're seeing that play out in our day-to-day that God has sovereignly and powerfully brought the gospel to the capital of the known world on a long and arduous journey from Jerusalem. And the journey has been filled with internal and external obstacles, but nothing can stop the relentless advance of the gospel. And we see that in our day today. And that, my friends, is good news for us to believe. And a true belief in something that good and true and beautiful has the power not only to change the world out there, but it'll change our world in here. Let me pray that God would do that. So Father, we thank you for your word in the book of Acts. Thank you for that last word, unhindered, which describes your work. And so Father, I pray that you would unhinder us from the sin that so easily entangles. It's deceptive, it's Hard to see sometimes, we're blind. God, I pray that you would 
unhinder us from the shackles of our sin, that we would uh, repent and turn towards you, or that we would be freed then to love others, to love those in, that we're in community, and to love those outside of our community, that they become family. Lord, would you see your gospel unhindered in this city of Melrose? Lord, I do pray that uh, there would be revival here. I pray that there would be um, the love of Christ and um, a desire for your gospel flowing through uh, the streets of this town. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.